Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. Hey, you're listening to Writing Class Radio, where we share stories with you from our writing class. I'm Allison Langer, a student in the class. And I'm Andrea Askowitz, the teacher. Today you'll hear a story from one of my fellow students, John Dope. His story is called Dark Matter. The story begins after John ODs on LSD, then backtracks to childhood. I remember my sister, Dominique, asking me, what happened to you? Why are you always caught up in some drama? You need to protect yourself from these dangerous situations. I didn't have a good answer then. I just kept quiet and let her put vitamin E on the scar on my forehead I got from smashing my head through a window. I overdosed on LSD. I had a bad trip on 15 hits of acid. I was born in Long Island, New York, in a Haitian family of five. I was the only boy and the fourth child. My family was the only Haitian family on Ridgewood Avenue. Both of my parents had more than one job. My mom, Nadja, worked in a hospital. She also worked at Eaton Corporation assembling parts on a conveyor belt and as a caterer for special events. I never met a person that did not like her cooking. Nadja was also born in Haiti and did not get far in school either. Her mother died of pneumonia when she was an infant. Her father traveled and dealt in the black market. The only pictures I ever saw of my grandfather were in a hat and an overcoat pointing a revolver. The other was in a coffin. My dad, Leon, was born in Haiti. He didn't get past the fourth grade because his dad made him work instead. He was an electrician supervisor for a company, a cab driver, and a mechanic. I know basically nothing about my father's side of the family. I only saw one picture of his mother that he kept on his nightstand. The picture was in black and white, and her complexion was very fair. My father didn't like that I had a dark complexion. He would ask me when I was a toddler, why are you so black? Nobody helped me with my studies. I remember going around the house looking for help. I would start with my oldest sister or the one in charge. Wee wee, we stood for Wilhelmina. Can you help me? She was always on her way out to be with her boyfriend. Next was Doe, which stood for Dominique. She stayed away from everyone locked in her room by herself or with her best friend. She burned a lot of incense, and when she came out, she would send me to the store to buy Entman's chocolate chip cookies. Doe said my ears remind her of them. Next was Mai Mai, which stood for Miley Ann. Mai Mai, I need help. Not right now, I'm on the phone. She then start talking in pig Latin. 
One day I found out how to decipher it on the back of a school bus. I snuck through the kitchen, to the living room, and under the table. I had my pencil and my black and white composition book. I spied on her as I looked through the embroidered tablecloth. She was on the couch with her back to me, chatting away. I found out she kissed a boy, and I sprung out, startling her. I said, ooh, I'm going to tell. But I was just joking. She rumbled and pounced on top of me. She was five years older and stronger than I was at age 11. She pinned me down on my back and grabbed my arms. You're going to tell what? I laughed and said, you're kissing boys. You're not going to say anything or I'm going to tell Poppy you're the one who broke the VCR. I got mad because we already agreed that was going to be a secret. I crossed my heart and hoped to die. I caught her smoking a cigarette and kept quiet when my dad found one of them that she left out in the room we shared. I cried out, oh, you're not fair. She said, life is not fair. Then she grabbed my arm and made me hit myself in my face. While she did that, she said, why are you hitting yourself? I started to cry because I was scared. She let me go and I asked, are you going to tell Poppy? Please don't. I was just joking with you. I'll do anything. Pretty please? My, my, I'll do all your chores. I was petrified of Leon and another whooping. He was so violent with his belt. And the most violent with me since I was the only boy. There were three kinds of whoopings. One, you hold out your hands, palms up, and he would spank them, mostly during some kind of interrogation of an incident. I also learned my multiplication that way. My arch nemesis was 7 times 6, or 6 times 7, 42. He get me every time with that one. He would start low, and I would count in my head. If I was worried I'd get one wrong, I would lie and ask to go to the bathroom and count on my fingers. The second and the ultimate mind fuck was the metal olive green folding chair that was placed out in the middle of the kitchen. That meant someone was going to get it when he came home. You would have to take down your pants and underwear, bend over a chair, and feel his wrath. Poppy, what did I do? I'd say as I undid my pants. He'd say, the longer you take, the longer I take. The third was the scariest to creep up on. The whooping that was made especially for me because I ran one day. I was four or five and after stripping off my clothes, I ran butt booty naked out the room, down the stairs, and out the door I went. He was on my tail as I ran out the door, but we had a big yard and he could not catch me. I ended up in my mother's arms and she pleaded with him to leave me alone and he did. That night, he came into my room, turned on the light, and shut the door. He was calm, but his eyes said I was in big trouble. I was trapped. Quickly, I hid under the bed. He snatched me out from under the bed and grabbed my arms tight so I couldn't get away. He hit me repeatedly, and I cried and screamed. I was frightened and in pain. I heard my sister yelling through the wall to leave me alone. I don't think he heard her. He was deaf with rage. 
I embarrassed him, and I had to pay. I ended up passing out. Leon left when I was seven. You'd think life would get calmer, but it didn't. He would come back to reprimand me, like when my mom told him I got bad math grades. And no one was there to watch me. Wee Wee Endo had left the house. By the time I was nine years old, my Mai was into boys and mom was working. My mom moved our family to Florida when I turned 12. She could not keep up with the bills and sold our house for a smaller one, a house in Miramar with a smaller backyard. Middle school was rough. I was picked on because I spoke too proper for the local kids. You talk like a cracker. I didn't even have clothes that were in style. My clothes came from flea market, Walmart, and my sister's hand-me-downs. I would bleach the clothes if they were pink or any other girlish color. I ended up getting into fights, and I won every single one. I eventually earned the other kids' respect for that and my athletic abilities. When I was 14, I smoked my first joint. I stole out of my mice purse while I was looking for candy. It felt great. I forgot about all my troubles and worries. Laughing never felt so good, and food never tasted better. From that point on, I was not afraid of taking drugs. When I was a freshman in high school, Wee Wee withdrew me from Miramar High and moved me to Naples, Florida. I ended up around rich kids and harder drugs like cocaine. When I first tried cocaine, it was by accident. I thought it was a crushed Percocet. Wee Wee had told me that if I ever did coke, I would have a heart attack. That wasn't true. So I did it all. Weed, pills, coke, and my favorite, acid. Most of the time, I did all of them at the same time. It only got darker from there because of drugs. I lost my home. I lost a chance to host a radio show. I lost the woman I loved. I've been clean for five years, but I still have regrets, and the scar on my forehead is a reminder of everything I've lost. When I look in the mirror, I can still see it. There isn't enough vitamin E to clear it up completely. The scar inside bothers me the most. After hearing his story in class, I was curious to know how John's life got darker. What did he mean he lost his home? What regrets? So we sent our audio producers, Diego and Misha, to get the scoop. But before we get to that, here's a word from our sponsors. Welcome back. You're listening to Writing Class Radio. At the beginning of this episode, John Dope read his story, Dark Matter, which gives us a little background into his life growing up. In class, when John ended this story, I was like, what? Wait, what happened? I wanted so much more. But in class, we don't get to hear the answers to those questions because the narrator's not allowed to speak after the story's read. He's not allowed to explain what he meant. The story has to speak for itself. John's story had holes. And I wasn't sure if he was afraid to share his whole story or if he just didn't get there in 1,200 words. I wanted to know everything. 
John agreed to meet up with Misha and Diego and share his whole story with us. Hey guys, this is Diego. I'm one of the audio producers. You may remember John from a previous episode. I'm really mad at my mom. I am so mad at my mother. I'm really upset at my mother because of the way she goes about everything. You know, we came from family five. She taught us a lot of good, a lot of good traits, you know, how to be respectful, uh, how to dress well, how to eat at the table, you know, don't run with the scissors, how to hand a knife over, you know, and but she had these relationships with these, you know, random men that have torn apart our family and really has thought nothing of it. In that episode, John told the story about his mom. In the story John read at the beginning of the episode, we hear a little about his sisters and their role in his childhood. We were curious to find out what happened in John's life during and after high school, so Misha and I decided to meet him outside of the event space he now works at. Hey! No, sorry. I gotta tell these guys. Hey guys, it's closed! Now, in 95, I ended up moving to Naples, Florida. You know, out of nowhere. I just go to school one day, and they're like, oh, you've been, you've been signed out. John was 14 years old when he transferred to a new high school in freshman year. The change was hard for him, but because he was a good athlete, he was asked to join the football team. By senior year, he was one of the best on the team and a prospect to play college ball. One day in his senior year, he was invited to wrestling practice. I was wrestling with him, and then he just fell on my knee, and then I, you know, it didn't feel too good. And it was no no urgent care for me. And, you know, the wrestling coach was like, if anybody asks you fell, you tripped in the parking lot. Not long after, college football recruiters from Ball State, a Division I school, came out to see him. Like, imagine, like, second, third period of class, full hallway, and, you know, I was in my PE class. I'm in a stabilizer, and I'm walking on crutches. And then I see my coach, and he's looking, and he sees me, and he has two guys with him. And then he sees I'm in a stabilizer. You know, he sighs, grabs his head, and then they, they make a brief conversation, and they turn around. This is, like, within 20 yards of me because, you know, I'm seeing it, but I don't really know what really happened until after I got to talk to my coach. Right. You know? You know? That was something that bothered me growing up. And, you know, realizing, because, like, your one chance, like, why do you even have to go to wrestling practice? They're like, oh, you should go to wrestling practice to make your resume look good. And look, look what happened. I ended up getting hurt, and then one, uh, one of the rare opportunities that I had to, to better my life and better my schooling and everything was taken away. After losing his opportunity to play college football, John gave up on himself. After that, you know, I started experimenting more with drugs, you know, just to cover up the pain and hurt of not being able to fulfill the dream I had. So the pain, like the physical pain and hurt or the, the No, the emotional, mental, the emotional pain. So like to escape what was happening, that, yeah. you, that your dream I, of becoming an athlete was fading. You away. know, I was trying to, you know, trying to get out. When I, when drugs came into my life, it made me feel good. And I did it to the best of my, <laughs> the best of my knowledge is try to do everything. I wanted new experiences, all this stuff just to make me feel good and escape from, you know, the, the mental trauma. 
John was given a spot on the football team at Methodist College, a D3 school in North Carolina, and his dad, having a desire to get back into his life, offered to pay. But toward the middle of the second semester, he takes a train home for spring break. My, my sister, I end up missing the train because through whatever reason, we had to do something else. We missed the train and I couldn't get back to the school in time. I missed the midterms. I was on an academic probation. My dad doesn't understand that. He thinks I did something wrong. So he's like, I'm, I'm cutting you off completely. After John's dad cut him off, he dropped out of school. Well, I got to live life on life's terms after that, you know? Then you don't got a college education. You have to deal with uh, low-paying jobs or be a laborer, construction. And then, you know, I did that for a little minute. And, you know, worked a little odd jobs here and there. Quit some, got fired from others from being a weekend warrior, you know. I partied on the weekends and, and worked during the week, you know. This went all the way, like, to 25. And, you know, started bouncing from couch to my sister's house to random places. And then that got all tired. And then eventually, you know, I became homeless. When, when and where was that tipping point when suddenly you went from being able to hold down a job or, or just work during the week and party hard on the weekend, you know, doing all these drugs to living on the street? Well, when was that tipping point? I would say the tipping point uh, was when my sister contracted HIV from her husband and uh, the de- when her death and then the death of my father that that was when you know i i just got real it was real emotional wreck and just try i took more chances uh, you know things i thought i would never do i started trying you know so when everything happened like that i just wanted you know to numb myself of the whole picture you know i i'm sorry i'm not be able to give clear pictures of everything it's been so much it was just too much and a lot of stuff i block out you know, because there's too much to deal with since day one. It's too much to deal with. And as, you know, as I got older, you know, and over here in Miami, started, you know, doing crack cocaine and just trying to sell drugs, trying to, you know, make a way, a means to, you know, to, to live and, and self-medicate. And, you know, it's, I just started, you know, it, Things I never done, being homeless, you know, living on the street, you know, passing out in some field. I, I couldn't, I was never comfortable like just sleeping right there on the sidewalk. I, I would try to find some, some secluded area where nobody wouldn't realize me because I was always worried about that. Being the type of lifestyle I grew up in and the people I met, you know, they would, it was too shameful for me just to, to be able to look at them from a piece of cardboard and, and be like, hey, remember me? Now the walls are swaying 
I remember trying to find, you know, a nice safe spot to sleep where nobody's going to mess with you while you sleep or anything crazy is going to happen. And then passing out and cops waking you up to sirens, uh, get, you know, get up, you know, supposed to be over here. I remember, you know, watching people get shot, killed, uh, people mental, dealing with a lot of people on the streets have mental issues. And they're just not right. And then because you're both doing a drug, you can't think they're going to be all right. They're not. When John first started using drugs to get away from his worries, he didn't imagine himself becoming addicted and homeless in Miami. What was he thinking? What was he feeling going from promising athlete to weekend raver to surviving on the streets? I just didn't, you know, I, I didn't care no more at that point, man. I was just like, you know, everything keeps going wrong. Everything has gone wrong in my life. You know, and this is what I might as well do. You know, because every time I seem to try, something goes wrong, the rug gets pulled out from under me, I make an innocent mistake, I make a regretful mistake. You know, I'm not perfect, I made some mistakes, you know. But it, it's going to do it no more. It's going to do it no felt more. Like you, were, like you, you felt like you were giving up. Yeah, I did give up at one point, you know. It was it was it was different, you know. It was different, but I felt like I I must belong here, because where I'm at, you know, nothing happens to you for without a reason. And I just tried to, you know, I dug deep, just try to live, try to be like a real homeless person, and and you learn different spots to go eat, and you know, I, I had a couple of guys I met, and they showed me, you know, they put me under their wing. Like, okay, this is places you eat. This is where you can shower, you know. Stuff like that. You know, trying when I tried to, you know, sell drugs. I did. I didn't say try. I did. So you, so you sold drugs here in Miami? Yeah. Did you get caught for that? Yeah, I got caught for that a couple times because you, you're just sitting there in a barrel. And if you're good, you're going to have a lot of customers come up to you. And it's going to be people constantly, you know, active area. And they know the area wins for is for high drug activity. And then they keep seeing you on the corner or in the area, you know, they would get busted, you know. What do you mean in a barrel? Like, because it's such a small area, and, like, if you have drugs in, uh, I'll say, a four-block radius, like a square, and it's in that area, and you decide to sell drugs in that area, it's it's, it's bound to happen. You're going to get busted. You know, is either competition's going to snitch on you, tell on you, or you're going to take a chance, or... You know, they just come up on me. I asked if selling was the only thing he got locked up for. Uh, possession, trespassing, criminal mischief, uh, grand theft. And it was that last one, grand theft, that landed him in jail for 180 days. John would also make money by selling scrap metals, sometimes by finding them on construction sites he'd sneak into. One day, someone came asking for a favor. Some guy comes up to me a couple days before my birthday, and he's like, hey, man, I need this uh, a dolly to come try to move some stuff. And I'm like, uh, I'll rent you a dolly, because, you know, it was a former way of making money. You know, if you have to move something heavy, not many people have it to move it correctly. They'll sit there, struggle, put on a buggy. And uh, I went to go help him with it. And then he was doing it wrong. I showed him how to do it correctly. And next thing you know, the police came. 
And then I thought it was going to be just like uh, criminal mischief, maybe property damage. But since uh, anything that costs over, was it, $350 considered uh, grand theft. And uh, we were breaking apart this old dilapidated aluminum fence that's already been missing pieces. So, you know, but it wasn't ours. Came back on the streets and then I'm just like, I'm here again, you know. Uh, I found some way to make some money, you know, and started getting high. Then I, it, wasn't, it didn't feel the same. I'm just sitting there and I was like, this is bullshit. And I went out, I left the place where I was smoking at, wasn't worried. I guess I ran out of money and I went to the sidewalk and I'm sitting there to like two o'clock in the morning. I'm like, you know what? I need to join a program, get back on my feet because life is better than this. You know, I shouldn't have to do this. There's a way it can be done. After getting out of jail, John made a choice to change his life. He left the spot he was getting high at and walked 25 blocks to the Miami Rescue Mission. Okay, I came from that street right there, 14 down. Actually, when I decided I was on probably like 8th, 7th, 6th, I was deep downtown. And I took the walk all the way over here. Someone offered me a tent. Somebody offered me a job. Somebody offered me to go get high, as high as I want to get. All within different occurrences while I'm walking to join the program. So that right there was like a sign, like, okay, I'm on to something. And you see, where was all this stuff when I needed it? And now, you know, so I just, it was very clear that I was doing the right thing. And I felt good. Misha and I went to the rescue mission so John could show us around. And he immediately ran into one of his old buddies. It's my friend Sam, Sam Cheever. <laughs> Sam and John talked about their shared experience at the mission, having to sleep on the chapel floor for the first few days, and taking communal showers with people who hadn't bathed in days, and being woken up by a PA system. John stayed at the mission for three years. He became the leader of the rehab program he got placed in, and completed the program in under a year. After finishing the program, he worked for the mission, placing calls asking for donations. In less than a third of the time he spent homeless, John sobered up and was earning an honest living. And if you ask him, what was it that lifted him and sustained him through this transitional period? I would say the mission, God, writing class, and a book called Louise L. Hay, You Can Heal Your Life, that my sister Dominique gave me. Life experiences and that book helped me get where I am today. John met Andrea when she taught classes at the Miami Rescue Mission. John showed up every week for two years. One day in our class, John wrote this. And had a chance to dig deep and work on myself. Her class helped saving my life. Thank you, Andrea, and I love you for that. You helped me find feelings that I suppress that give me the inspiration to give a shit. Plus, she laughs at my jokes. <laughs> John joined Writing Class Radio a year and a half ago. We let him use a pseudonym because of his affiliation with the rescue mission. But he promised to come clean when he could. 
A few months ago, John left the mission after living and working there for three years. Now, as promised, he's proud to use his real name. Oh, my name is Philip Silvern. Um, I'm Haitian, American, born in Long Island. I'm a production manager, and now I live here in Wynwood. Phil's life has been hell for a really long time. Life is fucking hard for all of us in one way or another. The trick is coping in a healthy way. Writing my stories has helped me get through a lot of shit. John told us that writing class was one of the main things that saved his life. I saw it firsthand. In class, when John wrote about the shitty things he's had to overcome, it seemed like writing them down and sharing them with the class helped to move past John Dope and onto a thriving, healthy Phil Silverin. Everyone who comes to class is working through something. Are you? Are you working through something in your life? If so, we want you to share your story with us. Write about what you're struggling with right now. Is it motherhood? Addiction? Your weight? Is it aging? Write for 10 minutes quickly without too much thought and record what you wrote on the voice memo of your phone. Then email it to us at info at writingclassradio.com. We'd love to air your response right here on the podcast. And let another mission consume me. I step down. This episode is produced by Diego Sadania Rojas, Misha Morrell, Andrea Askwitz, and me, Allison Langer, with editorial help from Sonesh Chinani and Wendy Adelson. Writing Class Radio is sponsored and recorded at the University of Miami School of Communication. Theme music by Adriel Borshansky. And additional music by Ari Herstand and Mom Plessier. Check out all our musicians on our website. Study the stories we study and listen to our craft talks. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? Looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man Podcast. Join me, host Mike C, as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.